This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 27th of February, 2019. The topic is cannabis and mental health. On the panel we have Belinda Volkov, Clinical Coordinator at the Sydney Drug Education and Counselling Centre. Dr. Kylie Bailey, Alcohol and Other Drugs Program Convener and Senior Clinical Psychologist at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Julia Lappin, Senior Lecturer at the UNSW School of Psychiatry and National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre. And Ellie is our lived experience representative. Chairing this session, we have Dr. Vered Gordon. So we might start with you, Kylie, really to really set the stage. Perhaps you can help us just understand some of the language around cannabis, some of the ways it's used, give us a little bit of an understanding of um, the drug itself. I thought we could look at the cannabis paraphernalia um, slide just to have a... So we all have a common understanding of the language being used and when we're talking about things, what they mean, because you'll be very surprised at how many people don't um, realise what, what expressions mean. So um, we've got this fellow here, he's using a glass pipe. He's, these are my words. This is the, I'm going to call the chamber, I'm calling this the stem. That's the mouthpiece. In the stem here will be a cone, and it's exactly as it is, cylindrical shaped. So what will happen is, you know, someone will buy their marijuana, they'll take it home, and they'll chop it up in a bowl, and they'll mix tobacco with it. And you need to remember they mix, they most, well, 90, I think 94% of cannabis users mix tobacco in with their um, pot. They'll call it spin. Once I've called, uh, heard it called flash and had to double check, I think you mean tobacco, is that what you mean? Is my understanding correct? And that was... That was spot on. So if you don't understand what someone's telling you, ask them. I haven't heard that expression before. What do you mean? So what they'll do is they'll pack the cone. Some people will pack it more tightly than others. Um, and there'll be variability in how much cannabis they will mix in with their tobacco in their cone. So they'll pack their cone and they'll put the cone in the stem. And here, which you can't see, um, which is the bottom part here, will be water. And the stem goes into the water. And uh, when they're ready, they'll um, light the cone whilst they're inhaling. So it's always important to find out, you know, how you're pull pulling your cones, you know, because he's pulling a cone, um, to find out, you know, what, what methods that they're using. Um, and if they're make, using a plastic bong or you know, any other sort of bong, our recommendation is that you see if they would consider, if they don't want to stop, if they would consider switching over to a glass bong because there's less harms associated with using a glass bong compared to plastic because we don't know the long-term effects of um, plastic being heated as well as a painted aluminium can. Make sure you talk to them about if they're daily users that they change their bong water daily, at least daily, because um, most of the time they'll smoke across the um, day and that they clean their bong daily to prevent them from having respiratory infections or getting um, any sort of lung um, disease. Over the far end here is a cigarette, uh, is a cannabis smoke, a cannabis cigarette called a joint. 
Um, usually I ask, do you smoke cones or joints? And people mostly smoke cones. Um, and yeah, again, they mix it with cannabis and tobacco. And I deliberately included a bucket bong in case you come across someone who uses a bucket bong. Even if you don't know all the words, it's actually great because young people love being experts on their own area and you actually can tap into their own expertise. You tell me. You tell me what you do. Do you use that thing that you smoke out of? And, and quite often, if you have developed that rapport, they'll actually be quite open about how they do that. So I might check with you then, Julia, in terms of how commonly cannabis is used in Australia and who's using it. What do we know? What does the epidemiology tell us around that? Yeah. So I think it's important, first of all, to talk about the differences in how much cannabis is being used. So many more people will use occasionally or experimentally compared to people who use regularly, daily. And fewer again will actually be dependent on cannabis. So around 10% of people who use regularly will become dependent. And that's important because we know that the more that you use, the more harms, and tonight we're talking about mental health harms, and, and it's true for mental health harms, the more mental health harms are associated with dependent use, for example, rather than occasional use. So what we know about how, how many people in the population are using is based on epidemiological studies around the world. Here in Australia, our best guess is around um, 4 to 8%, and that varies, and that's in the sort of 16 to, that's in the adult age group. But what we also know is that Cannabis use, like all substance use, is commonest in the 20s and 30s. And cannabis, differently to other substances, is one of the drugs that people tend to use from their teens onwards. So you'd expect higher than 4% in those younger groups and, and lower than 4% in um, the, the older population. But it's certainly the case that people in their 40s and 50s and 60s do continue to use cannabis. Obviously, the rates of dependence use are much lower than that. And Elle, I might check with you. Uh, what do you think led you to think about trying or starting to use cannabis? Um, so I was about 19 at the time. Um, I hadn't slept for about five days straight. Um, so I had severe insomnia and I had a friend who you know, was, you would never think had touched drugs in any way, shape or form. He said, oh, one time I tried um, weed and I fell asleep straight away. So when you're awake for five days straight and you haven't slept and you have severe insomnia um, and there was nothing else to do and I tried everything, you know, the councils had said and the doctors had said, and I tried that and you slept. That's what I think really hooked me in. And then following on, I think my use was a lot dependent on the coping and not being able to feel and, you know, being able to regulate those emotions that I hadn't been able to regulate for my entire life pretty much. How did you feel about finding yourself using cannabis? Um, there was a lot of shame. No one knew. Like other than not even my close friends. Like I held down jobs, nine to five. I'd duck on home to smoke weed in my lunch break. Um, nobody knew that I smoked weed ever in those years except for the people that I bought the weed off. And what was the impact of that for you, not being able um, to share it? or 
It was, it was shameful, um, but it was something that I didn't want to share. I grew up in, um, you know, very low social economic. I um, was in foster care and prior to that, you know, there was a lot of drug abuse in my life. So I had always differentiated myself to not being, for lack of a better terms, but one of those people. You know, I was smart, I was intelligent, I had a full-time job, I was doing really well in my life. So it was kind of just pulling me back into my past a little bit. There was a lot of that shame and resentment, hating myself, but I was sleeping. <laughs> and then, you know, over the years it just it progressed and it just became a dependency, you know, and then to not sleep, that anxiety and those stress and all of that stuff when you're trying to not smoke, to get off it was so intense and so overwhelming. So it was just sort of and a... The anxiety will go up if you yes. try and stop. Yep, and then, not, and then to stop um, and try and come off it, you know, again, you don't sleep for a couple of days or you might have an hour here or there. So it was like, oh, no, the insomnia. And to not sleep is it's a whole different world. And, and you could imagine also having depression on top of that and trying to cope with this and with depression, which is why it's always really important to have that therapeutic relationship with your patient so that they feel comfortable. I mean, I think you said two years? It was a year. A year yeah. that you so waited till you told your my therapist. My psychologist. Yeah. So she was trauma-informed and that was where I got the correct diagnosis of PTSD. Yeah. But that was in 2014. I think the first time I was hospitalised <laughs> was 2009. So it took six years. Depression first, a few years later, anxiety. And I did everything. You, you write the book of it, everything that they tell you to do, your doctors, your counsellors, your psychologists, your psychiatrists. I did everything until I got this correct diagnosis of PTSD, understood that diagnosis and everything that came with that was then I able to reduce that shame and understand, oh, I'm actually using this because of this. And then I was actually able to open up to my psychologist, which we had that, you know, relationship um, and tell her the truth, and then we'll actually able to work on that. But for me, having PTSD, it was actually learning those healthy coping mechanisms and adopting new healthy behaviours and actually being able to regulate myself, which I hadn't learnt throughout my life due to the trauma, that I picked up skills, whether it was mindfulness and meditation and grounding, breathing exercises, like all of that stuff I'd actually learnt over those 12 months. So when I was trying to kick the habit you know, with therapeutic support, because I had all of these other things um, that I'd learned and these other skills that I'd never had, I was then able to actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me that was yeah, a very important thing, having these other skills, which I didn't have before, and using weed was and that way to get through. I've consistently found that over my over 20 years working in drug and alcohol, you know, I've, I've yeah, found that... You need to build the person's skill set up before you remove their one and only coping mechanism. Yeah. And don't say you need natural highs. You never replace the high no. of a drug. In fact, it's a relationship that you need to grieve for. Yeah. So it's almost like it's the best and worst lover you could ever have in your life. You always go back for more. You feel shocking afterwards, but you will reinvent. And, and that relationship becomes such a primal relationship in your life. Um, but that's very true and that's why I think particularly with young people there can be quite a process. Yeah. Um, they're often not, you know, people often think too that they have to reach this point where, you know, I'm just sick of it. Well, people are often not sick of it enough. They, they, the payoffs are big enough to continue using if they don't have any of those exposure to those alternative 
um, supports that you're discussing. And I think you've highlighted really well that slippery slope that I've seen people tread so many times they don't realise. Oh, I'm only having a couple of cones every couple of days, across the week, and then over time that quickly becomes every night, oh, but it's only a couple of cones, and then they'll go through, they'll have a stressful day, so I'll have a little bit more, or I'm feeling a bit more down and flat today, so I'll use a little bit more, and you go through a stressful period and you're still using a little bit more, and then your body adapts to that level of cannabis within its system. So then you're caught in this vicious cycle of, I'm already feeling terrible and you've got this cannabis withdrawal happening without realising you're having a cannabis withdrawal. You could even have a cannabis hangover, a weed hangover the next Stone day over. if you... Yeah. Over the next yeah. And you feel even worse. And I do find that some people don't make that association until, it, until something significant happens. But addiction sneaks up on you and that's something that you don't have to work in addiction to recognise and work with. And if you're seeing someone who's using at this lower level, which I see more of now, it's how can you keep them from progressing? How can you build that person's skill set up so they can manage how they feel without turning to cannabis? Because once they turn to cannabis or any other drug, they get that immediate relief from how they feel. And there's no psychological intervention that can beat that. These days, I often experience quite a different presentation um, that young people will tell me quite clearly that they wanted to be a stoner, that they actually, part of adolescence is to find um, an identity and they've already decided that's what they want, but that nobody's exempt from dependence. You have to have the perfect storm. And that can be a variety of mechanisms, including trauma, or for some people, um, a variety of other things. Depression, anxiety doesn't have to be at raging high levels for them just to sort of feel a bit better. Um, and then that becomes the preference and tolerance is the classic kind of thing that people do where we have people up to um, 80 cones a day or it might be helpful for you to know as well in relation to cannabis that about a gram of cannabis if they're smoking about a you know a gram a day it's roughly about 10 cones. There's a lot of debate around is cannabis really a risk factor for mental health issues and secondly are some people more at risk of that than others? So the questions are very interlinked and um, we know that there is very significant comorbidity of cannabis and mental health problems. There's no doubt about that. The, the question is to what extent does cannabis cause disorders like psychosis and depression? And that's a difficult thing to tease out because we know that there are an awful lot of confounding factors in the people who use cannabis because they share many uh, risk factors which would also predispose them to have significant mental health problems. So, for example, Elle, you shared with us that you know you had um, very difficult experiences during development, um, and, and, and that's a risk factor for subsequent drug use, and it's also a risk factor for a whole range of mental health issues. So it is important, of course it's important for us to know, does cannabis cause psychosis? Does cannabis cause depression? And I can, I can detail for you a little bit about what we think we know. But ultimately, if you have someone in the room with you 
who has those conditions, then really what caused what becomes a very secondary issue. And actually what you want to know is how do you best help? How, how do you even start to tackle someone who's really got quite a complex presentation and their use is possibly no longer pleasant to them but feels necessary? And how do you, how do you assist them with that and with the mental health issues that may arise as they sort of challenge themselves to sort of try and come off. So then, so just to answer that question about what do we think we know about um, cannabis causing mental health problems, I'll talk about psychosis first because that's my area of expertise. And we know that um, people who use cannabis at a younger age are more likely to develop schizophrenia than people who don't. Roughly speaking, the best estimate that we have is that people are around twice as likely to develop a psychosis spectrum disorder, and that's the umbrella under which schizophrenia, bipolar affective disorder, and so on falls. They're about twice as likely to develop one of those uh, psychotic disorders if they've used um, cannabis. Again, if it's occasional use, the risk drops down to about one and a half times the general population. If it's dependent use, it, it increases to maybe three times. So that's the, that's the range. So you need to know not just if the person is using, but how much they're using. Is it a real dependent thing? Is it a daily use? Is it 10 cones a day? Is it 80 cones a day? Because, um, what you see in your service is people who are using really at the very, Pointy extreme end. end, the pointy end. What you may see um, in practice in the, in the general population is people who are using one or two cones at the weekend, and that exposure is itself enough to trigger a psychotic episode, particularly in a young person or indeed any person, because you can develop a psychosis at any age, who has a vulnerability. A vulnerability might be a family history, early life trauma, developmental difficulties, um, people who have um, been first or second generation immigrants. So all, all these risk factors, we're, we're talking about the use of a substance and cannabis in particular is an additional risk factor that can precipitate psychosis. Whether it can precipitate psychosis in someone who would never otherwise have, have got it is something that we don't really know. But we know that people who use cannabis can experience psychotic symptoms during its use. That's different from developing a psychotic episode, which means that you're still experiencing symptoms like paranoia, feeling that people are going to harm you, feeling that there are people or hallucinations, hearing voices, seeing things. Those experiences are still present even after the effects of the cannabis have long since gone from the body. And that's that's where you should act. That's where you should refer someone um, for uh, uh, a psychiatric opinion. I can also talk a bit about depression. So we know similarly that depression, rates of depression much higher among people who use cannabis. We think that, um, again, it's the same scenario. Um, factors that lead you into using cannabis are similar to factors that predispose you to depression. But um, about, you're about 1.5 times more likely to get depression 
if you use cannabis after all these other things have been taken into account. So there is an increased risk. There is an increased risk of suicide, particularly in young people, and that's something that we must be aware of. Of course, there's many, many young people who use cannabis, but if someone's presenting to you saying that they've got suicidal um, thoughts and plans, then additionally knowing that they're using cannabis um, should alert you to the fact that they're um, a risk to themselves. And then the, the one, I mean, obviously, Elle, you've spoken quite a lot about um, trauma and PTSD, and we know that those are very commonly um, comorbid. Um, I guess, Elle, you talked about how you felt um, ashamed of your use and the stigma attached. And what we know, maybe not so much for cannabis, but certainly among other people who use uh, other substances that are used and that become very addictive is that people can become, ex they can expose themselves to trauma through their substance use, through, through um, seeking, you know, money, um, placing themselves in vulnerable positions and uh, situations. And, and, and that's another whole area of risk associated with substance use and cannabis use. I'll finish just the one last point. Um, bipolar disorder, similarly to depression, there are raised levels, uh, raised um, numbers of people who have bipolar among cannabis users compared to the general population. Also anxiety, and that's another of the chicken and egg scenarios. Anxiety is very bound up in cannabis withdrawal. So, El, you talked about insomnia. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would have experienced symptoms of anxiety, tension. Um, again, we don't know if you're if you're more anxious, or you're more likely to use cannabis. But certainly, anxiety is very much part of the experience of um, regular cannabis use and withdrawal. And I guess if there is G GPs in the room, one of the things that I'll hear clients do because they know they'll always say it's about the sleep. That's one of the things that. You know, I can't quit, I can't sleep without it. And they will do that drug-seeking behaviour, understandably, because, they, and they now know how to, um, you know, I think quetiapine is, is quite popular these days. They actually find ways to kind of go to the GP. So they might just be talking to you about their anxiety and insomnia, and they may also be um, using a lot of cannabis at the same time. So it's not until they come into our service and they're, they're open. But it is that that really important thing that when they go and present, they'll often present with other kind of symptomology, not necessarily focusing directly to you on the cannabis, but some of the cues around that are around sleep. And Elle, I'm curious, you talked about really starting cannabis as a way of managing symptoms. Did you feel the cannabis use then affected your mental health or affected your symptoms? Like what, what impact did it have? Um, I feel like it started, it was originally helping me and it kind of goes back to the usage where you might start by smoking a gram a week and then eventually I'll go up to a whole ounce. Um, so the more I smoked, I will, it's, it, it got to the point that I could keep on smoking and I wasn't ever feeling stoned. So it started working against me. It's kind of like you work up to this point and you hit this wall and then you're not actually getting the um, calming effects of cannabis and it starts working against you with the anxiety, with not eating in every way, shape or form and you're actually being anxious, you have insomnia and you have all this even though 
you've just smoked an incredible amount yes. of cannabis that it actually is not helping you any way, shape, or form. And, it, and then more, it's more habitual. It's the habit. It's that that was your your comfort in your times of stress that you didn't have any other coping mechanisms. That's what you sort of went to. I'm just wondering um, when we talk about cannabis, we're, we're obviously talking about THC, but I know that with the medical use of cannabis, they're, they're often looking at C, CBD. Obviously, there's another side to this because if we look at the medical use, cannabis might be able to help mental health if it's used in the appropriate way. I think where we're at with medicinal cannabis is at a very early stage and there are quite a few studies out now, particularly in pain management, but sticking tonight with comorbidity, also with other issues like depression, anxiety, psychosis. And you're right that um, the THC, which is the tetrahydrocannabidiol component of cannabis, that's the one that does the harm, and the CBD doesn't do harm. And if anything, it seems to have some positive effects, like improving memory, reducing um, mental health symptoms. This is in the very short term in studies that have been done. It's hoped that we can use the, the good parts of the plant and, and not um, cause ill effects. But we really are in very early stages of it. I guess I was just wondering if in your experience you find that you have a lot of um, patients who are cannabis users and also um, dependent on prescription drugs. Um, I've noticed that I've had a few different um, clients who are also addicted to pain relief medication and the other thing would be um, sort of um, medicinal um, relief for psychotic or um, psychological issues like antidepressants and um, Valium and, and various drugs like that. The answer is yes, and alongside cannabis, lots of young people are using drugs that they can access. The ones that seem to be quite easy to access at the moment are the, as you say, the, the, the pain, the pain treatments, which people are using increasingly. We've seen quite a huge, um, more of a prevalence, you know, in, on the northern beaches, we're seeing a lot of pharmaceutical abuse. With young people, we're seeing a lot more of that jumping into the pharmaceutical abuse for for very similar reasons to, to the self-medicating thing, but also the enjoyment of the, those drugs. My, my impression among my patients is that they, they can access Xanax very easily, yeah. that they sometimes sell their quetiapine, which is a decent street value. A lot of people are using Antidepressants as well. Lyric has become And a lot popular. of people talk about going around different GPs, you know, doctor shopping. And this is something, it's just, it's a very difficult problem for us as a group to try and manage, I think. But it's, it's an awareness as well, just that, that it is a real problem. Following on from this question, I'd be really interested. Sometimes there's a bit of a heart sink element when you've got people who are, you know, using multiple substances and have together with that maybe depression, anxiety, psychosis. Or, um, What's your advice? How can we start? Where do we start? How do we help people who have that mix, that comorbidity of the cannabis use disorder together with perhaps depression and anxiety or less commonly psychosis? And how can we feel more hopeful about making a difference? It would be really nice to hear from you what you think would, would have been helpful for you. Um, again, I keep on going back to the trauma. Mm -hmm. So when I understood 
you know, childhood abuse and those effects that it had on my life and that I adopted certain coping mechanisms to survive the trauma of my childhood that then went onwards into my adult life and started working against me. When I had that knowledge and that education, I mean, I tried to to go drug and alcohol counsellors. I'd been there. I knew it was bad. I knew it was going to help. I knew if I wanted to get better um, and recover from the depression, from the anxiety, I had to get off the weed. But it wasn't until I had a trauma-informed psychologist and I learned about PTSD and I learned about developmental trauma and I learned about my brain and how my brain had developed and I had all this education and then I learned healthy coping mechanisms and healthy behaviours and I changed so many other parts of my life and I had sleep hygiene and I learned about nutritional side of things. Everything else, then I was able to get rid of it. So it was everything else. It wasn't just drugs are bad. You know, it wasn't, you know, the, okay. the, the typical drug and alcohol, you know, mm. trying to keep the habit. It was, for me, the understanding and the education of the trauma and everything else that then led me to being able to stop. Elle, I've got a question that follows on directly from that. What I'm wondering, and because I'm big on prevention rather than on waiting until we need to intervene with treatment, what I'm wondering is that in the course of your history, was there ever an opportunity where somebody could have intervened as far as the PTSD, uh, that, that educational component is concerned, before you started treating yourself with the cannabis? Do you think there were missed opportunities there? So much so. Like I was, you know, I went into the foster care system. I went in there. I put myself in the foster care system at seven years old. I was known to the government um, throughout foster care when I went into, you know, I was there. I had seen psychologists, didn't understand it. Throughout my entire life, it took me, you know, me actually having that initiative and me pushing for it, me just keep on and ignoring all the people that said no and all that negative attitude and, you know, and that stigma and that judgment and that sometimes nastiness of yeah. the medical professionals um, to, for me to actually push through and be like, no, something's not right here. Um, luckily, like the Rolf Harris and the Royal Commission and all this other stuff popped up. So and then I was like, hang on, maybe the childhood sexual abuse actually has something to do with it, not just the domestic abuse, not just the physical, the emotional. But that was something, but, again, that was that was a lot of me. I pushed through that. I didn't want to be like the rest of my biological family. Um, but there were so many missed opportunities, and essentially that's why I'm studying what I'm doing and I want to get into public health policy. I want to stop people falling through the gaps because there's so many gaps that I could have got caught that I never was. And I I agree with that. I've had so many referrals over the years um, where it's for anxiety or agoraphobia or depression and you sit down and, and, you know, it's almost like a semi-structured interview with me. I go through everything because I want to know you and how you are and how you move through the world. Um, And it's... What's wrong with you? Exactly. I, I want to hear about it from, I want, and I want to hear your words and I want to hear your language. And usually what I find is that, you know, people who present with this that has, have a trauma-informed background or have a trauma background, it hasn't been picked up and it's been put under depression or it's been put under a whole swag of anxiety disorders or borderline personality disorder 
And the moment that I hear about their family of origin and, and the things that have happened, then I know to change gears and I educate that person that after me, you cannot see a generalist psychologist, you cannot see a generalist healthcare worker, you must see a trauma-informed person because you can have as much depression treatment as you can get, but it'll only work to a little point. It doesn't address how depression manifests itself in complex PTSD, particularly working in a tertiary and I also see in a primary care setting, it's, you know, the drug and alcohol use is not often not the problem, it's a solution to another problem. And you need to address that other problem first without talking to people about sending them off to detox or, you know, I mean, you do need to have those conversations about would you consider reducing or, or, or quitting, but you really need to find out why they're using. And the longer someone is using, the more functions that drug serves for them. And, and you need to map that out, just like you do with their depression. I think one of the biggest things that I see all the time is just the, the incredible level of entrenchment around stigma. You know, so, so stigma, I mean, you, when, you, when you've got drug and alcohol and mental health and you've got a historical system that is morality versus science, and, and, you know, because drug and alcohol has always been treated as a morality issue. You know, people still say to me, what's your success rate with clients? It's like, well, is that only for the abstinent ones or the ones that are more functional? And I think because we often, you know, controlled drinking, we're allowed to talk about a lot more openly um, than we are about controlled cannabis use or, or anything else. And the legality around that has only intensified the kind of... Um, uh, morality arguments that people have of that being good. I mean, molecules don't decide what's immoral, we do. And I think there's that thing that nobody is saying, ever saying, that drug use is is doesn't come with harm, so does jumping out of a, a plane and a parachute. There's a lot of harms that go with it. But this intense stigma, the fact that we use language like, have you got clean time up? What are you, dirty when you use? So there's this incredible barrier to treatment, particularly around mental health, because mental health always has a stigma. But if you're using drugs and you're already depressed, you should know better. Mm -hmm. So the judgment around that is probably one of the biggest things I think as a society moving forward, we need to actually address the way we talk about this as a public health issue. And there is no way to drug proof a person. You've got to have that perfect storm, but it's the language that we're using that's pretty unhelpful. But there's also, I think, I think it's also important to acknowledge that it is a, it is, these are complex problems Absolutely. to treat. And um, we can yeah. feel disheartened and we can feel, you know, like you're extending help to these people and they don't, they don't want to, they're not even ready to hear it. It feels like, you know, you're in time pressured situations. You've tried to help, but actually they just, take your advice for a couple of weeks and then just they're back well, into they their don't. old patterns. Yeah. But I guess the point is that it, it's just such an entrenched habit that people have got into. It's just it's just not an easy solution. It's not an easy fix. And, and now I think for you probably it, it took many years. And I mean, in some ways, the process that you went through eventually helped you find the solutions but it was it was a very long haul for you and it's wonderful that you found someone to take you through that bit at the end who really 
um, guided you through. I mean, it's it's a wonderful story to hear about your recovery. It really is. But for 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 for, ma- for many people, it's 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 not recovery. It's more about managing the problem long term. And that that's sort of part of the role of the clinician is to sit with that. You know. And also with young people too. I don't get a fifteen-year-old coming into my room going, "I am so done." I just cannot have another cone. You know, quite often they're warming up and, and particularly when they are, even when we work, we're a trauma-informed service, we also don't trauma blast our clients by saying, tell me everything horrific that's happened to you since you were a child. So we've also got to be very mindful about people's timing around talking about things. We can talk around trauma and those sorts of things. But to me, a lot of 15, 16-year-olds are still living the years they're yet to reflect and we're wanting to pop on a cardigan and get really kind of deep about what's happening for you. And I think in some cases we've got to look at with young people, you're going to be working very differently than you are with an older population. They are least likely to have readiness for change. And that's why harm reduction is such an important thing. I mean, I'll never apologise for keeping somebody alive. But if in any way through that journey we can even reduce any of the harm so that, you know, when they do have readiness for change, there's something to work with. That's a really important thing. So our expectations of the client and what we want for them can be really caught up again in that stigma and, and, and you know, you need to just stop. We, we, we know often that they do, but, but they're doing it for a reason and it's finding out those reasons and teasing out, rolling with that resistance yeah. and finding that ambivalence that's right, really But important. it's also it's sitting with and saying, you know, I can be here for the long, yes. for the long haul and it's providing them with health equity because we know that people with substance use disorders just are subject to so much health inequity. So should should be able to come in, get the physical health check, you know, whatever help they'll receive. Um, I guess I see it as our duty to provide it you know but it is it but it's it's important to acknowledge that it is hard on the clinician too it's it's hard work um i work with families and carers of people experiencing mental health issues and probably about a quarter of my clients are parents whose children um, use cannabis as a coping mechanism. So some of my clients have kicked their kids out of the house because of that and some of my clients have driven their kids to their dealers yes so what is some suggestions for parents on how to support that mental health recovery? Traditionally, the drug and alcohol sector is focused on the pathology of the individual. And, and so when you're working with parents, because we didn't even have for a long time, um, we've had to work towards having youth-specific services. Youth-specific drug and alcohol services is even more rare and tricky. So, so one of the things that we see with parents, we in our service... Um, we kind of have to work with the parents. So people talk a lot to me about I need to do tough love. Well, tough love's not mean love. So there's, there's, a, there's a really interesting dividing thing there. And so what we like to do, even if the young person does not have readiness for change, and they often don't, when we work systemically with the parents, parents are not causal. And I want to make that really clear because I don't like that blame the, blame the parent mentality. But people can be unknowingly contributing to particular cultures in families that can prevent um, the parents from making certain steps. So if you say to a parent, if you had absolutely no fear about what's going to happen to your child, and I guarantee that that's exactly what's happened for, for them, they might be a little bit more clearer. The other thing too is to help them understand that if they've got someone in active dependence, 
if it was a case of just telling someone and giving them a good talking to, we wouldn't need our degrees. We wouldn't be in our sector. So, so helping them understand, um, you know, stages of change model is a tool that we use to help parents understand that um, not everybody, just because you want them to change, that they're not in action. The other thing too, with, with even of older children, for parents, they need their own support around talking with someone about what's happening in the family home. Parents will come in two very distinct generic ways. They'll come in in guilt and shame and what is the magic sentence, I didn't give my child to drug proof them. Or they come in and say, I've given birth to a psychopath. And, and, and either way, they're highly vigilant, distressed, and, and you can see that they're heading towards that road. So they'll go either the kick out, which is a tough love, um, or they'll actually um, overly make it so comfortable there's no discomfort for change. So discomfort promotes change. Trauma doesn't, but discomfort does. So in, in relating, and it's very complex, so working with families, it's, it's pretty important to have a good understanding around the family system. Trying to work with parents, we work with them separately to the young person because usually all you're doing is refereeing because of the levels of language that we might hear. And I also work with a lot of parents being violently attacked by their children um, and, and AVOs and all of those things are happening. I'm seeing lots of nodding. And I think parents are the most untapped into resource. Um, for some young people, they cannot rely on their family and we know that and we, and we work with that and that needs to be looked at. But a lot of young people, the family can be functional enough, even if they're not living there, to be the long-term support as opposed to the, to the services and, and workers. And we're not tapping in. We talk about family inclusivity, but we've still got a long way to go in, in doing that in, in drug and alcohol, particularly in comorbid presentations. Because I'm working with adults, I will talk to the partner or the adult, uh, the, the parent or the adult child of well, let's look at their mental health symptoms and what's the plan, what's the management, what's the, what's the behavioural strategies that the psychologist has put in, what are the warning signs and how can you be included on that because we know that mental health can drive cannabis use um, to help, help them feel better. So if the parents become included in that element of these are the warning signs, how can you tell your parent, I'm not travelling so well, I need extra support today? Or how can the parents behaviourally pick up, oh, there's a shift in their mood or they're a bit snappier today? Okay, that's a warning sign. So what's the plan for that? So I find coming through that mental health um, back door, so to speak, is really, really helpful, but also setting some boundaries around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. There is also significant stigma in help seeking for mental health diagnoses. It's not just having the thing, it's seeking help for the thing. Now, that makes me think about online resources and programs for treatment of mental health generally. Is there anything that, is there any place for programs like Clear Your Vision in the treatment of cannabis dependence and use. What do you think about that? I think there's room for everything. There's not going to ever be a one-size-fits-all, which when you look at drug and alcohol, traditionally it's often been that way and stigma is 50 years behind mental health when you add a, a drug and alcohol issue on as well. So I think in relation to when you talk about resources, anything that contributes to access or for a person is, is worthy 
of trial and trying. I mean, a lot of people do um, sit behind screens and 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 have, and particularly with some cannabis users where their world gets really, really small. I still think that through all that, and this is the big hopeful message, we're still all planting seeds all the time, aren't we? To give them the opportunity to know where to access things when indeed they have that potential readiness for change. I'm in a spot at the moment where within my service, I'm looking at how can we integrate online and app interventions with what we're doing. Um, And I see a clear role in that as an adjunct to therapy. Mm. It may not be something that we would roll out to everybody. Um, And as a clinician, I would pick who I think and and treatment match that way. Um, And I also see it as a nice in-between measure that if you go on holidays, um, you you can quite effectively blend that in so at least the person has some support. Like a lot of the kids that come up to me and speak to me when I do my black dog presentations, they start talking about issues that they're having and problems. I'm like, well, how would you feel about going to a GP or your school counsellor or is there a trusted adult? You know, really exploring that. And a lot of them like, nut, nut. well, what about accessing something online? And then you give a yes. And they're open to that. Anything to get that ball rolling, anything to start normalising that, um, just any support in any way, Don't shape or form, is, yeah, <laughs> anything is better than nothing. Yeah. Just wondering, is there any um, uh, medication, antidepressants or anti-anxiety drug or anything else that can replace cannabis in the short term? So actually what we know about treating cannabis, it's, it's about what we've talked about tonight. It's, it's, it's a very, very complex thing. There are some treatments that may be helpful in the actual withdrawal process, but what we know about giving up abstaining successfully over longer periods of time is that it's it's hard work and it's more about CBT and other forms of therapy that are that are um, evidence-based. One of the things that we do and 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 of course Julie is much more well versed in this area than I am but we will co-treat certain things so certainly even if they're still using and we're seeing symptomology around psychosis the, the prescriber will sometimes prescribe medication even though they're still using because there used to be this thing where some psychiatrists will go, I'm not touching that unless they're not using. We're, what we're not doing is necessarily looking at diagnoses around that time because we're in that, you know, are they developing illness? Is it just drug-related? Is it? But also sometimes we have found that in some cases that when they co-treat some of the symptoms, whether it be you know, an SSRI or whether they treat them like that, we've seen them have um, a better, like particularly around withdrawal, we have actually seen that that can give them an opportunity um, and, and maybe some confidence around not using. So please join me in thanking our wonderful panel for such a passionate and interesting discussion. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, Subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.